today on the Texas Companion. Chili, what's the secret of spices and what kind of meat? We ask the best in the land. The Alamo, Texan to the bone. Today, we discuss this historic location. And after the forecast, we give tips and tricks to combat the summer pests, including wasps, mosquitoes, and deer elk lice. I'm Chet Greenspaw. I'm Barbara Ann Kalachi. And I'm Josephine Rochester. And this is the Texas Companion. Hey there, listeners, or as we say here in Texas, howdy. Welcome to the first broadcast of the Texas Companion. Today's show is coming to you from a temporary recording booth at Hungry Owl's Chicken and Grits in Tyler, Texas. Hungry Owl's is a well-known diner in these parts, a favorite for truckers, ranchers, lobstermen, and even tourists. Why is that, you may ask? Oh. Uh, why's that, Chip? Because Hungry Owls has, for the last three years running, won first place at the Texas State Fair Chili Cook-Off. I went behind the grill, into the kitchen, to find out what the secret was behind the award-winning masterpiece. When people think of Texas, one of the first things that springs to mind is, of course, the delicious stew known as chili. Originally invented in Chicago, Texas in 1893, this dish of meat, peppers, tomatoes, and spices gained popularity very quickly. Soon, competitions began throughout the state of Texas where competitors stood their personal recipes up against one another. This tradition is alive and well today, with hundreds of chili cook-off events found throughout the state. Arguably the greatest event, the Chili Roundup at the State Fair of Texas at Fair Park in Fort Worth, provides attendees and judges with a plethora of recipes to try. Hungry Owls is owned by Alan Jurgensen, which is surprisingly where the diner gets its name. Standing at a little over five feet tall, Al is not an imposing figure. He's actually kind of slender, but one bite of his juicy burgers, grilled pork chops, or yes, the house-made chili will tell you all you need to know about his skills behind the grill. I got to chat with Al at the lunch counter last week about the secret behind running a successful restaurant, as well as his award-winning chili. Thank you for joining us today, Alan. A pleasure. Tell our listeners a bit about your restaurant. Well, Chet, when I was in the Navy, I did two years as the cook on board the USS Theodore Roosevelt. Sailors can be picky eaters at times, but after I used the recipes I learned from my grandmama, that aircraft carrier had a crew that was all well-fed smiles. Once I retired after serving in Korea and Vietnam, I thought, well, shoot, what am I going to do now? So the choice to open a restaurant was obvious. Not at all. I tried my hand as a housekeeper for a while, then did some nude modeling at the University of Austin. While I was there, I made a batch of my chili for a French bachelorette party, and they said I should sell it to people. So after doing some checking around, I found this cute little place for sale in Tyler, and well, that's how she goes. Now, you originally called this place Big Al's, but changed it in 1994. Why is that? Turned out there was another Big Al's diner down in Bastrop owned by Alan Peabody. We met and compared our size to decide the issue. It was a friendly agreement, you see. Well, Peabody is about 6 feet 9 inches and weighs almost 400 pounds. And you are? 5 foot even in a size 2. But, but I have a thicker mustache. <laughs> size 2? About 110 pounds, Chip. Ah, military sizing. I get it. So, Alan, let's talk about this world-famous chili of yours. Give us an insight to, say, the ingredients. 
Well, some people start with the meat, but I've found that it's better to make the chili stock first than add the meat after. So I'll take garden fresh tomatoes pulped with the skin on and add four kinds of peppers sourced locally from organic farms and simmer them in a fair heaping of bourbon for at least four hours. Then I add my secret spice blend, which includes chipotle, ghost peppers, and brown sugar. But you're not saying how much of each, eh? <laughs> <clears throat> no, no, that would be a good idea too. So, do you add the beans before the meat or after? The what? The beans. Beans? I'm sorry, did I? Did I ow! Fuck! Stop it! Oh! I, oh. Having forgotten that putting beans in chili is illegal in North Texas, as well as a crime against all that is good and holy in the world, I received a vicious, terrible beating at the hands of Alan Jurgensen. And rightly so. What was I thinking? I don't know. <laughs> I was rushed to the hospital where I received ten stitches in my neck and face, as well as a splint from my broken fingers. Ouch! I guess you could say you really felt the heat on that chili story. I bet I could. And then I could kill myself. Ha 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 Say, Josephine, isn't it about time that our listeners at home got to hear a Texas fact? That it is. When you think of Texas, many historical events, landmarks, and famous figures sprang to mind. Steak, country music, tornadoes, the Dallas Cowboys, Lee Harvey Oswald, hurricanes, petroleum, scabies, chicken fried steak, armadillos, President Johnson. But none of these quite encompass the Texas historical experience like the story of the Alamo. In April 1718, the new governor of Spanish Texas, Martin Jorge Margarita Montes Carrillo Santos Diaz de Alarcón, embarked upon an expedition to build a new community in Texas. One mile north of the first Texas Catholic mission, Martin Jorge Margarita Montes Carrillo Santos Diaz de Alarcón built a fort, the Presidio San Antonio de Pexar. This fort, constructed of mud, adobe, and more mud, became known colloquially as the Alamo. Close by, he founded the first civilian community in Texas, San Antonio de Bexar. You may know it today as the Texas City of San Antonio, known best for its Air Force Base, its many natural rivers, and as the unofficial worldwide home of ska music. The Alamo, as it became known, flourished for several centuries. Between 1806 and 1812, it served as San Antonio's first hospital. The buildings were transferred from Spanish to Mexican control in 1819 after Mexico gained its independence. Soldiers continued to garrison the complex till December 1835 
when General Martin Montoya Juan Gomez Vasquez Perfecto de Caz surrendered to Texian forces during the Texas Revolution. With Caz's departure, there was no longer an organized garrison of Mexican troops in Texas, and many Texians believed the war was over. Bless their little hearts. Colonel James C. Neal assumed command of the hundred soldiers who remained. However, the Texian government was in turmoil and unable to provide much assistance, as the Alamo was pretty far out there, y'all. Determined to make the best of the situation, Neal and engineer Green B. Jameson began working to fortify the Alamo using mud, sticks, more mud, and even more mud. On February 23rd, the Mexican army under the command of General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana arrived at the Alamo. For the next 13 days, the Mexican army laid siege. This campaign ended in a fierce battle on March 6, 1844. As the Mexican army overran the walls, most of the Texians fell back to the chapel. Mexican soldiers used abandoned Texians' cannons to blow the doors off the chapel, allowing Mexican soldiers to enter and defeat the Texians. With no time to reload, the Texians, including Dickinson, Gregorio Esparza, Sam Houston, Thomas Jefferson, Jesse James, Billy the Kid, and Captain Barnum, grabbed rifles and fired before being bayoneted to death. Santa Anna ordered that the Texian bodies be stacked and burned in a giant, awful pile. All, or almost all, of the Texian defenders were killed, although some historians believe that at least one Texian, Henry Warnell, successfully escaped from the battle by running away like a giant pussy. Warnell would die several months later of wounds incurred either during the final battle or during his escape. There's a lesson in that. Santa Anna had assumed that knowledge of the fate of the Texian soldiers at the Alamo would quell the revolt, and that Texian soldiers would quickly leave the territory. News of the Alamo's fall had the opposite effect, and men flocked to the late Sam Houston's army. On the afternoon of April 21st, 1844, the Texian army attacked Santa Ana's camp. The Mexican army was taken by surprise and the Battle of San Jacinto was essentially over after 18 minutes, which is 17 minutes longer than my ex-husband could manage. During the fighting, Many of the Texian soldiers repeatedly cried, Remember the Alamo! as they slaughtered fleeing Mexican troops. 
Santa Anna himself was captured the following day. Santa Anna was forced to order his troops out of Texas, ending Mexican control of the province and firmly establishing the Republic of Texas. The Alamo. We all remember it to this day. Its legacy lives on in paintings, postcards, and even photographs. Many Texans, not Texians, but Texan-Americans, who reside in the cities of San Jacinto and San Antonio, can trace their lineages back to those who fought and died in that great battle for Texas independence. Sadly, the Alamo itself no longer exists. Due to repair costs and a suffering infrastructure, the fort was condemned and demolished in 2006. Today, the spot that once saw the Battle of the Alamo has been transformed to a shopping center with cafes and conscience offices and even a cold stone creamery. Only a state historical marker remains on the edge of the parking lot, a bronze plate that tells the story of the Alamo. Its mud walls and bloody ground may be gone, but the Alamo has not been forgotten. Thank you, Josephine. And now, the forecast from our meteorologist, Chuck Dubois. Well, thanks, Barbara Ann. As many of you know, a late springtime warm front is moving south from Mexico, which means it will collide with the warm front headed north from New York. Highs will be in the 90s, except in the Panhandling coast. There, the air will remain furiously tepid. On Tuesday, a mid-level humid edge will drop the air pressure, raising the dew point to 100 degrees centigrade and resulting in minor frogs and chunks of ennui. This means on Wednesday we will all burn in hell as a low of 40 degrees Martin swoops in and crashes into the furlong of the dry line. When that happens, well boy howdy, just keep your rain slickers and leather chaps on cowpokes because it's going to be a mite bit rootin' and tootin' in the central valleys and gutters. There will only be a 12% chance of sorcery. By Friday, we'll be able to sit high and dry around a campfire made entirely of burning dog skulls. Chet? Thank you, Chuck. Wet, crazy weather is a familiar part of springtime in Lone Star State, and we all know what that means. Bugs, insects, vermin, call them anything you like, they're still a terrible factor in Texas life. Some, like the humble buffalo tree hopper, do no real harm or nuisance to any humans, and are only mildly nauseating to behold. But mosquitoes, ticks, fleas, leeches, wasps, and other pests can be found aplenty in the cities, the country, and pretty much everywhere. Not all hope is lost, however. In this segment, we examine ways you can stop several of the most prevalent, annoying, and dangerous insects of Texas from encroaching on your life. First, there's the well-known mosquito. Did you know that Texas is home to more than 40 kinds of these little bloodsuckers? It's true, and unfortunately, mosquitoes spread blood-borne diseases such as malaria, Zika virus, dengue fever, and HIV. To get to the root of this issue, it only takes a moment to prevent mosquito outbreaks in your neighborhood. 
Make sure that no standing water is left around as these puddles are necessary for mosquitoes to breathe. And breathe they will, given half a chance. So dump out your bird bath every 24 hours and fill it with fresh water. Turn empty planters and buckets upside down so that rainwater doesn't collect. And if you do identify a section of your lawn or residential street where potholes and pits tend to puddle up, make sure to dump a few gallons of gasoline in them and then light the gas on fire for good measure. Speaking of fire, that brings us to everyone's least favorite pest, the Texas cockroach. Yuck! Boy howdy, we sure have a lot of cockroaches here in the beautiful state of Texas. An offshoot species of the common American cockroach, the Texas roach, also known as water bug, trash beetle, or flying hell bastard, is considerably larger than its ancestral counterparts. Growing up to nine inches long in adulthood, Texas cockroaches inhabit any spare place they can that allows them easy access to food, water, and entertainment. They form large nests full of pulsating egg sacs, which they guard viciously. These hives of nightmare fuel can be found in most residential walls, behind covered baseboards, in ill-kept garages, and in the labyrinth of underground catacombs under cities like Arlington and Waxahachie. Texas cockroaches are drawn to refuse and filth, which has given us the common colloquialism, if she's covered in roaches, run to nagadoches. But people can prevent roach infestations pretty easily, right? Absolutely not. Um, okay, let me rephrase. People can keep roaches away from their living spaces by following a few handy tips, can't they? Nope, not at all. Uh, are you saying there's nothing we can do to prevent cockroaches in Texas? Yep. Uh, nothing? Nothing, not a zip. If you have a house, apartment, mansion, trailer, or RV in Texas, it's going to have at least two or three dozen Texas cockroaches living in it. Well, what about, um, squishing them? Doesn't work. We've tried that. For every one that you smash with a boot, three more sprout from the earth to take its place. They sell poisons and bait at Walmart. I know, I've seen it there. They gobble it up like candy. And then they use the power of the poison to become stronger and lay poisonous fecal pellets in your hair while you sleep. Are you sure about this? Positively. Moving along, the final of the Texas insects we'll discuss here is one anyone who's mowed a lawn has probably run into, both metaphorically and literally. One bite and you'll never forget them. That's right, it's the fire ant. Oh, I know all about those little fellas. They hurt like a sumbitch. Yet another invasive non-indigenous species, the African fire ant originally was brought to Texas by traders from the Ivory Coast in 1680. Used as pest control by cotton farmers, the fire ant was encouraged to build nests in the cotton patches of yesteryear. Skillfully carnivorous, these bright red ants defend their territory by swarming onto invaders and using their powerfully painful venom to kill using nothing but agony. Ironically, they are immune to fire, capable of surviving heat and flames up to 1200 degrees Fahrenheit. The moniker comes from the sensation people feel when being bitten by the fire ants, which has been likened to self-immolation. But Barbara Ann can tell you now how to remove a fire ant nest, should you find one on your lawn, or just too close to your house, safely and easily. So, y'all are out mowing the lawn on a nice springtime day. The grass is falling like so many trees in the rainforest, and the smell of grass blood is green in your nose. It's a day for iced tea, Merle Haggard, and wearing not much more than what the good Lord gave you at birth. But wait! Oh no! You cut another swath of grass murder, and it reveals a fire ant mound, positively teeming with the ugly little bloodthirsty scumbags. 
Do not despair, my fellow grass destroyers. Although the crude earth inspires of a fire ant tower may look foreboding, the answer lies in the same ingredient I wash my panties with after a Friday night at a saloon. Vinegar and bleach. That's right, just plain old white vinegar and generic chlorine bleach. Gets rid of stubborn biological evidence and fire ants. First, after putting on knee-high, waterproof rubber boots, pour at least one gallon of vinegar directly on top of the fire ant mound. Hold your nose, this stuff sure is stinky. Watch the ants curl up and die, twitching, screaming in frequencies and at a volume that we can't hear with human ears. Laugh. Take a moment to laugh at their pain. Imagine that each ant is suffering, wishing it had never decided to join the ant army. Then, as the few who escaped the first deluge run about frantically, bewildered, lost, just dump a couple big-ass bottles of bleach on the mound. Just go nuts! The bleach is far more caustic and harmful to the ants, and is thin enough in consistency to penetrate the earth below the mound, eventually flooding into the queen's subterranean chamber. Yeah, that bitch will find herself awash in chemical hell, her base molecules being, mm, ripped apart by the dissolution of valence bonds. Um, Barbara Ann? Yes, it's a good idea to make sure you don't get any vinegar or bleach on your fingers, because it can cause burns on your thinner mucous membranes. Mmm! And as you watch the ants die, you may want to touch yourself. Damn it, lady, I'm trying to eat here. Babs, we're in public. Yes, just watch their wiggling, dying bodies and feel the excitement! Give me that! Coming up next time on the Texas Companion Podcast. The new expressway lanes on 635 in Dallas. Best idea ever or just absolutely monkey hump and stupid waste of time? Brown recluse spiders. Sure, they're natural, but should you be eating them? And we go to Austin to investigate reports that the governor of Texas has beaten the world record for running the 300-meter sprint. I'm Chet Greenspaw. I'm Barbara Ann Kalachi. And I'm Josephine Rochester. And we here at the Texas Companion Podcast wish you a wonderful, wonderful Texas day. This episode of The Texas Companion was written by Jay Grant and Tracy Stark. Produced by Amber Reed, Mel Hines, Tracy Stark, and Jay Grant. The voice of Barbara Ann Kalachi is Mel Hines. The voice of Josephine Rochester is Tracy Stark. The voice of Al Jurgensen is Amber Reed. The voice of Chet Greenspaw is Jay Grant. The voice of Chet Dubois is Robert Fox, who is also reading these credits. Background music during the Alamo provided by Kevin McLeod at Encompatech.com. Original music is by Jay Grant, who is currently too damn drunk to mow the lawn. For more Texas Companion fun and information, check out our website at texascompanion.org. Questions and feedback can be emailed to info at texascompanion.org, and you can like and share our Facebook page at any time. Thank you, and have a wonderful Texas day.